Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn, Analysis and Insights Manager at ORE Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. I'm back with the Head of Analysis and Insights, Gavin Smart, as we review the biggest developments in offshore renewable energy this year. As we come to the end of 2021, it's been another unprecedented year that many of us couldn't have predicted. With that being said, we gave it our best shot at the beginning of the year, highlighting six key predictions that we believed would take shape this year. Join us as we discuss just how accurate our predictions have been for 2021 and what 2022 has in store for the industry. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay, Tom. So the first prediction in the blog was around the topic of United States offshore wind. So the expectation was to see much more progressive policy and to see the Vineyard Wind Project take FID. So where are we on these? Yeah, I don't think we really stuck our necks out very much on this one by saying there'd be more progressive policy. It was a fairly safe bet with Biden in power. But what we have seen is in, in the middle of the year, we said there was a new target set for 30 gigawatts by 2030. And now we're starting to see the projects getting sanctioned and starting construction to meet that target. Vineyard did take FID and it started construction. It's, it's broken ground. The other big bit of policy news in the US is that the $1 trillion infrastructure bill through Congress, and that includes all sorts of infrastructure, but the, the offshore wind specific bits are looking at big investments in ports, state funding and, and grants for ports, $100 million for R&D in the wind sector. So I think that includes onshore wind. One of the big ticket items was $2.5 billion spent on transmission assets. That's a big one to enable that 30 gigawatts to be achieved. And then finally, there was a 20 million pounds, so relatively small pot for sustainability in offshore wind. That's definitely all to be welcomed. I guess just to clarify that, that's 20 million dollars. Yes. What did I say? <laughs> I think you're, you're pretending that we're all in the UK. I mean, I guess some of the positives about that are, you know, the legislation that's already gone through because it feels like increasingly um, it's going to be harder and harder to get things through in terms of the way that the kind of the politics are working and and stalemates, that kind of thing. So, yeah, one of the positives to come out of this has been a clear pipeline of proposed leasing rounds. So we've got three or four lease sales that are due to take place in the next couple of years. Uh, mostly on the east coast and then there's one on the west coast in the near term and some further out closer to 2030 so all of this is getting things ready to achieve that 30 gigawatts by 2030 target great now either by luck or judgment you've kind of segged into talking about pipelines there which is great because the next prediction was looking at the growth in the uk offshore energy pipeline um, so we, we talked in the article about um, Scotland leases and hopefully seeing some kind of ring fence budget for marine energy. How have we got on there? We've done OK. I mean, in the middle of the year, we had to admit that we'd got it slightly wrong with Scotland. There was a delay while they, um, well, Crown Estate Scotland worked out the new option fee, the, the revisions to make sure that they're not effectively giving away this acreage too low a price. But that's all going ahead and it's all been fairly positive news. A lot of floating winds likely to come out of, of the Scotland leasing round. But a lot of eyes are now on the allocation round four, which was opened today. It's potentially huge. I don't know if you want to go into some of the details, Gavin. Yeah. So AR4, like you said, now open for business, as it were. And so we expect there's probably up to about 12 gigawatts of offshore wind going to bid into AR4. 
Uh, we'll see how much of that gets through, but we're, we're going to see you know, significant capacities awarded this time around. The exciting thing as well about AR4, um, for the first time there is a ring fence budget for floating offshore wind, but also now for tidal stream energy. So I think the you know two things that Catapult and many others in the industry have been pushing for, it's great to see that these are actually now put in place. So I think we'll all be watching keenly to see what actually happens in terms of the auction results. But it's really positive that there's a, a real acknowledgement that these technologies, we need to develop them and we need to we need to start doing it now. We can't just put it off and off and off. So again, real positive, but we need to kind of see what, what actually gets awarded come the start of next year. I think there's going to be a, potentially less focus on the strike prices because, you know, we saw in the last allocation round some very surprising numbers. But this time around, you'd hope that maybe the prices might be a bit higher, but it might mean it's better for the UK supply chain. And like you said, for some of these more innovative technologies that, that require higher strike prices. Well, I think it's, yeah, and I suppose you need to split it between um, kind of more established technologies such as offshore wind and compared to floating offshore wind and tidal stream, given that the, the ceiling price for offshore wind has been set at £46 for the auction which, as you said, is, you know, it's about £6 higher than the, the average price from AR3. But in terms of the optics and what's acceptable, how much higher than £40 you could go this time, it's kind of difficult, especially if you want to get the, the bulk of the capacity through. So definitely things to look at, but it would be great to see more balance come in in terms of the overall value between strike prices, supply chain value, energy security, etc. Um, but it's, it's a tough one to master in terms of getting the balance right, that's for sure. So again, we've kind of neatly segged into talking about new technologies, including floating offshore wind, which was the subject of our next prediction. I'm saying they're our predictions because I think a lot of them are, are kind of coming to fruition, whereas when we get on to any that really haven't been happening, they'll probably be your predictions again, Tom. Yeah, okay. As long as we're clear, I think that's all, all good. We were hoping to see an increase in the 2030 target to two gigawatts of floating offshore wind and some boost for, for the Celtic Sea, as well as hopefully seeing some oil majors moving in to start powering offshore assets with floating wind. So again, what's the state of things here, Tom? We've not had a new target set. The target is still effectively that, that one gigawatt by 2030 of floating wind. However, we've seen a lot of action happen. Like you said, in our last bit on the allocation round, there's pot for floating wind. That should encourage more development. But we've also got plans recently announced by the Crown Estate for the Celtic Sea, with up to four gigawatts of offshore wind in the longer term out to 2035. And in the short term projects, up to 300 megawatts. The Celtic Sea is likely to be, you know, mostly or, or all floating wind. So to get to that four gigawatts, yes, we're going to have to start seeing things happen before 2030. So, yeah, so that's been big steps and really important for, for the region in the, the southwest, where obviously there's been building up a lot of momentum. So, so, again, great to see recognition that there's, you know, there's some direct action that can be taken. I guess the other aspect of that we mentioned about oil majors and floating offshore platforms, there's been the announcement of the, the INTOG consultation and projects that will come out of that. Is there anything you, you can say about that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. The INTOG um, round, the idea behind it is to try and decarbonize oil and gas platforms, but also to start developing floating wind relatively quickly. So these are smallish sites and areas that can be uh, developed. But the idea is that, yes, we try out innovative new technologies, start seeing some cost reduction. And then when it comes to Scotland, which may come later, we, we'll start benefiting for these larger utility scale projects. There's been a lot of talk and there still is a lot of talk around floating wind for oil and gas platforms. 
we've not seen a lot of action so far. It seems to be the preferred case is to have partial decarbonisation, try and tie several oil and gas platforms together and power them from a small wind farm of maybe five or six turbines. I think that's as well summed up. And for a bonus point, can you tell everyone what INTOG stands for? <laughs> uh, something about oil and gas. I think most people just tuning in might have got that bit. So I'm going to put you out your misery um, before people kind of send their, their answers in a postcard. It's offshore wind for innovation and targeted oil and gas decarbonisation. It really rolls off the tongue, that one. Exactly. So you can kind of understand where, where INTOG comes from to get people talking about it. And that's looking at kind of off-grid solutions there towards the end. But the one of our next predictions was to do with grid improvements in the UK. And we mentioned about the, the offshore transmission network review being underway. And there was mention in the blog about development of energy islands and hydrogen demonstration projects. A bit of a range of things within them. We've tried to squeeze into kind of grid improvements there. Take us through what, what's happened on, on each of those for now, please. Yeah, so the energy islands front, we've seen some more. Again, there's a lot of talk around this, but there is actually a little bit of action. It's not in the UK, though. It's in Denmark. They're really talking up this idea of the energy islands. And they make a lot of sense from an operational point of view. You have an island acting as a hub. You can tie in, uh, you, you know, you're almost unlimited the amount of floating wind or bottom fixed wind that you can tie into this central hub. And it means that all of a sudden, rather than being 100 or 150 kilometers from your wind farm, you could be 10, let's say, and just means that your operations and maintenance is, is a lot easier to handle. It's been a bit quiet in the second half this year around the Energy Islands. There's some big announcements earlier on the year. So again, not a lot of real action happening there, but some positive developments. It's interesting that, um, so I understand that National Grid has been in discussions with unnamed parties about getting involved in some of these Energy Island projects. Um, so it kind of shows that, you know, there's now direct interest in the UK, which is a, it's a huge positive because I think, you know, as, as we see in quite a few areas, it's through more international collaboration that these bigger projects and concepts are going to actually push through. It's going to take more than just one country to push the agenda. So hopefully there's some positives there, you know, as well as Denmark and there's been talking in the Netherlands and Belgium. I think if we start linking up with the UK as well, it becomes a very big kind of powerful argument and hopefully sets the scene for more interconnection. It might be a good solution for the Celtic Sea as well. This is my Irish side coming in, but you could tie in the Irish market, those Celtic Sea leasing areas. That almost makes too much sense. Um, but we're, that's kind of energy islands. And how about much progress on the hydrogen demonstration front? In our mid-year podcast, we were talking about some of these projects that had just been announced. So one was in Whiteley, which was a plan to take the existing onshore wind farm, tie it into some hydrogen electrolyzers, and also look at adding solar so that you can have higher utilization of those electrolyzers. And then the hydrogen would, would be used for you know, buses in Glasgow and potentially other uses in the region. You can listen back to our old podcast for more details on that. Yeah, so that was um, a bit of an update from our mid-year review. And then since then, has there been anything else significant announced? At the end of last month in November, BP announced a big high green project in Seaside. So that's looking at uh, adding 60 megawatts of green hydrogen production by 2025. The interesting thing here, that it chimes a bit with the government's uh, hydrogen strategy that was announced earlier in the year, is that 
BP will have a blue hydrogen project, which is using natural gas to produce hydrogen, alongside the green hydrogen, which is using renewable energy to power electrolyzers. So it's this idea of the, the twin track of having multiple sources of hydrogen. And I guess the interesting thing from that is we'll start to see a hydrogen market develop. So demand will go, you know, initially to likely to BP's facilities in Teesside, but then extend out into the wider region. We touched on this in our mid-year review as well, that, you know, this creation of the supply and demand at the right pace is great. It's one thing having technology push, but you do need an end market user in the end to kind of make it worth everyone's while. Yeah, and it's also interesting to look at it from the cost point of view, because blue hydrogen has been, uh, it's been said to be cheaper than green hydrogen. We've not actually got any, you know, large blue hydrogen projects already operational because it requires carbon capture and storage, which, again, is not, you know, an, an entirely proven technology. But what we've seen in the last couple of months is really high gas prices, which means that all of a sudden green hydrogen is likely to look relatively competitive to blue hydrogen. It's an interesting one. There are schools of thought, you know, about developing blue hydrogen in the short term, but leading to us majoring more in green hydrogen longer term. And I must admit, I do feel there's a bit of a risk that if you're planning on going green hydrogen ultimately, then you should be setting things up now, go down that road now and reduce costs early on rather than sink an investment into, you know, a kind of alternative technology that you don't have a long term aspiration for. It kind of feels like a false economy. So like yeah. more focus directly on green hydrogen today, that would be, I think that would be ideal. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's not just that we don't have the aspirations in the future for blue hydrogen. We also don't have the gas that would be reliant on imports to produce that blue hydrogen. But one thing that's been spoken about recently is rather than focusing purely on green hydrogen, it's looking at low carbon hydrogen. They sound like the same thing, but I guess low carbon would include things like nuclear power to hydrogen and, and other sources like that, maybe biomass as well. It's possible we might see a little bit of a mix. The risk I see is that we end up watering down, like you said, our green ambition to satisfy the nuclear industry. And I guess the, you know, the other side of this is, as well as recognising the green drive for this and, and net zero, it's also some recognition of the supply chain value here, you know, the potential for the UK to, to kind of take the lead in, in a new emerging technology. I'm saying that as much to make the point, but also to segue us into the next topic from your blog, which was exactly about that. It was about UK capturing more supply chain value, um, and that was looking specifically at offshore wind. So we were hoping to see investments, you know, throughout the, the balance of plant, and ideally we kind of move towards some structured skills program for energy transition. So what have you seen in those areas? In the start of the year, a lot of the focus was on ports. So we saw some grants given to Able Marine and to Teesworks. There was also some focus on free ports and green ports. Free ports are in, in England. Green ports is the similar idea in Scotland that gives some tax advantages to those port operators. The green ports has stalled slightly because the Scottish government were keen to get some fair work principles embedded in that, making sure that you know, all employees at Freeports get paid living wage and the rest of it. The UK government has not gone along with that. So there's been a little bit of a, a holdup in those going ahead. But what we have seen is some of these Freeports in England benefiting already from that status. And so, like you said, we saw a lot of that activity early in the year and towards the middle of the year. So more recently, I think there've been a few big investments throughout the supply chain. Are there any of those that you'd kind of want to major on? Yeah, it's been a really positive end to the year from a 
supply chain point of view, we've always said that it's important if you want to get to the 60% local content by 2030, it's important to be building stuff. That sounds a bit uh, flippant, but it's about more than just managing, you know, the operations and maintenance out of the UK. We need to be building large bits of kits like towers and monopiles and, and foundations. So we've had a recent report published by Renewable UK looking at all the investments that were announced in the UK supply chain in uh, 2021. If you add it all, all up, it comes to just over a billion pounds of investment. And it's split across various sectors, looking at, at monopiles and towers and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I'm not sure, Gavin, if you want to go into some of the details about what's been announced. Yeah, sure. I mean, so interestingly, it's it does cover quite a lot of the balance of plant area. So we've had uh, investments announced in blade facilities. So they're going to be in Teesside and in Hull. We've got tower facilities, um, both up in, uh, in NIG in Scotland and in Teesside as well. And then we've got monopiles also being developed out in the Humber. And we've also got facilities for transition pieces being invested on up in Walls End. And also we, we've seen an increase in our cable supply. So hopefully moving towards being able to produce export cables up in Blythe a place close to all our hearts here at the Catapult. So some, some positive news there in terms of the investments. And of course, what we all need to focus on now is kind of doing our bit to make sure these investments are success and the, the facilities are up in manufacturing at the time required. Yeah, it's a really good question is uh, all this investment, it's uh, all positive news, but is it enough to make us reach our targets? I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. We need to make sure that the uh, investments that have been made, that we use those facilities as much as possible, have them really high utilisation rates, but it's likely we're going to need several several years of these levels of investments. Absolutely. And, and I think as well as going back to your point about we need to be making, as you so eloquently put it, stuff, we also need to kind of make sure we, we don't lose our focus on you know areas of existing strength. So you mentioned operations and maintenance. We need to be making sure that we're all doing what we can to, to kind of enforce those skills and make sure that we keep bringing that activity and those jobs to UK centres of excellence. So I think that maybe actually brings us a wee bit into the, the technology innovation, which was the, the final topic of your blog at the start of the year. So we talked about some of the, the innovations we expected to come through, and, and it included things like robotics solutions to do with O&M, drone delivery of spare parts, but also talked about increasing turbine ratings and, you know, increase in size of array cable voltage. So where have we got to on at least a few of those? I think with robotics, it's something that every year that we make these predictions, we predict we're going to see more robotics and more autonomous systems. And it never quite pans out at a large scale. I think what we need for this to really take off is to have one of the large wind farm operators say, yes, this is a solution that works. We'll buy a thousand drones and it will manage our entire offshore wind fleet. We're not at that point yet. So I think um, we're still very much early days. So I don't think we're going to see a large you know, commercial project taking on these for at least a few years. But there is a lot of positive results coming out of testing. The analysis that we do shows that there's big savings to be made by wind farm operators by going down this route. And it's almost like you've, you've just described the Christmas wish list for half of our engineering team there. I think when you described, I'll have a thousand drones, please. Um, <laughs> add, add a lot more to that, I think. <laughs> and, and how about um, turbine sizes? So I think we, we kind of set the benchmark that we would see a turbine model announced greater than 15 megawatts. How's that looking? Ming Yang uh, announced a 16 megawatts turbine, which we expect to see uh, in 
or at least uh, starting installation around 2024. So that is pretty huge. I mean, it's larger than what we've seen come out of Vestas and Siemens Gamesa, who both have the largest turbine models are around 15 megawatts. But I don't think we're expecting to see 20 megawatt models by the end of this decade. And by the rate that they're going, it may be even sooner than that. It depends who you ask what the the answer to that is, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It doesn't feel long since um, 15 megawatts being announced. We're just outstripping, you know, GE's largest of of 13 megawatts. So yeah, it does feel like every year that goes by, the the bar is just getting raised and raised, which is excellent. And, you know, as long as someone's out there making the the vessels and the cranes, etc., to install these beasts, uh, I think we'll all be fine. It's not only size that's uh, been a focus, we're also looking at sustainability. It's something that as a Caspolt, we're very invested in looking at circular economies and end-of-life strategies for offshore wind. So there's been some technical innovation on that front as well. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing the, the industry come together, looking at recycling and lower impact solutions for blades, especially, and significantly Vestas have come out and committed to producing zero waste turbines by 2040. For considering the whole of the turbine, I think that's, that's a really big move. And as we've seen with turbine ratings, you know, when, when we have one OEM coming forward, something like this, I think we can expect everyone to follow suit. In fact, it may be that, that a lot of the manufacturers already have in-house plans and are just kind of working out when to, to go public with them. But as you say, it's great that we can build on work that we are doing ourselves with others around the industry on circular economy for for wind systems so the CEWS and hopefully we'll see that go from strength to strength with with all this renewed interest both within the industry and I think in the wider world. So that's a nice roundup of where we've got to with our 2021 predictions and as usual we'll be coming back sometime in January with our look ahead at 2022 but just in the meantime you know even just based on the topics we've looked at are there any things that you'd want to point to as a, a brief look ahead on these subjects? I think what's interesting is in Scotland, particularly next year is going to be a bit of a bumper year for offshore wind installations. Looking at Renewable UK's database, they say they're expecting 2.6 gigawatts to be um, installed in 2022. So it's uh, really positive from that point of view. That's adding about 20% to the total capacity in one year. So if we carry that on, we'll you know have a real chance of meeting some of these longer term targets. And then in terms of the AR4, so getting more capacity away, I guess we'll all be watching keenly to, to find out how much floating wind and how much tidal stream gets through in their in their ring fence budgets, as well as the, the larger capacities we expect to come through for offshore wind in general. Yeah, if you look at some of the longer term forecasts that are made by the likes of Committee for Climate Change and other companies that look at these forecasts, most of them are saying that 100 gigawatts by 2050 is feasible and floating wind is critical for reaching those targets. So it's really important that we start developing this soon. We start seeing cost reduction quickly in order to start ramping up towards these larger, I was going to say targets, but but forecast numbers. And so I guess tying in with that, the other topics we've talked about there in terms of grid development and supply chain are going to be key because otherwise, you know, you can have all the, the pipeline you want, but you still need somewhere to connect into and you still need to get the kit from somewhere. So I think we just need to, again, focus on everyone kind of moving forward at the right pace to enable this ambition. Yeah, and I guess the other enabling action to tie into what we've been talking about is is hydrogen. Once you start getting 100 gigawatts of offshore wind, or we look at 150 gigawatts as well as in our high case, that is going to require hydrogen market or some other way of distributing this power, both nationally and internationally. 
So we've got our work cut out, but it's exciting times ahead. That sums up 2022 and hopefully every year to come afterwards. Yeah, we can't rest in our laurels and I think we've outlined that there's a lot of work still to be done. Well, as long as we can keep you gainfully employed for a while longer, I guess that's the main thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our final episode of 2021. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.